Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. This is a day when we celebrate the light that is always breaking in. And when we turn from the liturgical colors and the weight of Lenten purple and we turn to the white of resurrection and we tell the story of how love has made us at one with God again. It's so great to celebrate in community with the Eucharist table and with balloon animals, which the kids don't even know they're getting yet. And then obviously we're gonna celebrate with some calories today. Make sure if you didn't already on your way in, if you didn't grab donuts, make sure you do on the way out. And please take a photo back there with your family. We love to mark these special days with these photos that we collect in social media. And we hope that you don't have to rush off today. I know some of you are probably connecting with family and friends and doing all kinds of things. But if you can, stick around, say hi to somebody outside in the sunshine and take advantage of all that this day brings to us. Because this day is the height of the Christian calendar. It's this realization of all the waiting and the expectation that began for us back in Advent, right at the end of November, and it is the focal point of our spring here at Commons, where we unapologetically center ourselves on the stories of resurrection. And for those of you who have been around for the last few weeks, you know that in keeping with this season, we have been looking at some stories that Jesus told. Stories covering a wide range of themes, things like sheep getting lost and servants being cruel, neighbors not getting out of bed for their friends. And in each of those stories that we've looked at, theologian and author Robert Capon argues that Jesus wasn't just trying to come up with new content on the fly. He wasn't trying to keep his audience engaged and keeping them from falling asleep. No, instead, Capon argues that Jesus offered stories to his audience as icons of himself. And that like good poetry, they aren't just meant to mean something. They're meant to be something. The stories are meant to change us, to somehow be more truthful and more honest and more beautiful than the sum of their words. Which is why Capon writes that it isn't important that we get the parables that Jesus talks to us about. We don't need to get them so much as we need to see them as a way of God, or a way that God gets to us. Where the cracks and the fiction and the cognitive dissonances of the stories, they have grace leaking through them until all we can do is see that in some way, Jesus told us stories as a way of getting closer to those listening. Which is what happens to us in the account of an early Sunday morning and startled witnesses and an empty tomb and a mysterious encounter in the garden. This rumor that we have from history that in Jesus, God had not sidestepped our darkness, but instead had become a partner in the death that we all come to in the end. And going into it, letting it glory over our weakness yet again is seemed, which is the power in the story if you think about it. Because there in the dark, in the quiet, in the great solitude of our final sleep, their love sparked resurrection and renewal to drive away all our fear. And that is a story worth telling which we will, with one more look at a parable from Jesus. But before we get to that, join me in a jubilant Easter prayer. Risen God,
Perhaps it was on a morning like this when what was lost and dead and grieved was stirred to life by love. And just as your body rested there, so many places in our hearts rest too, waiting on divine promise to come through. So too in us today, maybe there is furious longing for new day dawn and a flurry of new beginnings and dreams and strength brought back, which is why we gather to hear the story again, a story that makes all the difference. Jesus Christ, our risen hope, in you we pray. Amen. Now, we're gonna come to the images of Easter morning in a few minutes here, but to get there, our path is gonna take us through one more last parable. And to tell that story, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of our Parables of Grace series that we just finished. And I know that our teaching here at Commons can feel a little bit like a year-end review or a pop-up quiz from time to time, but bear with me because some of you may remember that we began this series with a story about a lost sheep in Luke 15. And there, we learn that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And that in response to these concerns about his shady friends, Jesus tells a story about a lost sheep, pointing to how God is more like an impulsive, wide-eyed shepherd than a shrewd business owner. And that the economy of grace runs on recovering what's lost, not on securing and protecting assets which is this really beautiful flip that Jesus performs with these religious leaders. And Jesus' parable is trying to help them out, encouraging them to see that it's never our, devor- or our devotion or our decorum that secure our spot in God's graces. But in fact, it's our lostness. And we didn't elaborate on this that first week, but that story is just act one. It's the first of three stories in Luke 15 because it's almost like Jesus got some blank stares with the sheep story. So in the following verses, he tells a story about a woman who loses a coin. And she's panicking, she's looking everywhere, he tells us. Which, just a quick note, it might be more present to us if we think about something other than a coin because I can't tell you the last time I used a coin to buy anything, much less caring about how many of them are underneath my fridge or in my couch. It's, it's better that we imagine something super important or valuable, like a passport, which I can relate to, where we don't know where we put it, and we suspect that our partner or our roommate or our toddler or our pet has moved it on us, and there's this initial panic, and then it elevates to low-level dread, and it doesn't matter what else you're doing with your life, you're just thinking about that thing until you find it which is the image that Jesus gives us of the divine, obsessed with and anxious about finding what's lost, which brings us to act three, because the Lucan author just tells us that Jesus continues telling stories, and whether this is because he told the lost coin story and it was just crickets, and he was at risk of bombing, or maybe it was because he knew that like Canadian storyteller David Yashinsky has written, every time a story's told, there's a lot in the balance. Because storytelling is not just an entertaining way to pass the time. 
It's an art that can mend broken souls. So Jesus keeps going into a story that begins, there was a man who had two sons. And just for the record, as a person who was raised in a family of two sons, I would have heard this introduction with some trepidation because I know the dark places that me and my brother went to in our sibling journey, places that led my mother to think that we would never speak to each other as adults. And I wanted to show you some proof that we have actually become pretty good friends, which is a parable of grace in and of itself. But the point is that I would have heard Jesus and immediately thought of some version of this story that I think I knew was coming. Yeah, there was a tall brother and then there's a short one. And as a result, there was sibling rivalry and probably some violence, which would have happened too with Jesus's audience. Because see, they were part of a tradition, a long peopled story that had tales of their own. And in their history, there were a couple of episodes, significantly, that had two sons in them, Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. And in those stories, there's this interesting pattern where older brothers, like me, showed themselves to be less than stellar. And where, at the very least, divine preference just seems to favor the younger of the two in all those stories. And where the flow of grace is always to the weaker and the undeserving one. Which just means that as Jesus starts this tale, which goes that the younger of two brothers came to his father and he demanded his inheritance and a share of his family wealth, and then promptly leaves and squanders it all on wild living, right there, the crowd's notion of who the hero is in the story would have been overturned because this younger brother is a bit of a creep. And you might imagine the ancient audience sort of going, what? And where Jesus doesn't seem to have gotten through with the sheep and the coin, now all of a sudden there is a room of people dialed in on what he's saying, which makes me want to pause before we move on from parables for a while. And think about how often Jesus does this. He just flips the script how often his message comes to us through this sideswiping source or image. And really, if you think about it, how the claims of Resurrection Sunday are like this too. How we speak of redemption born from abandonment, an inheritance found in loss and life found through death, but then curiously, if I think about it and I'm honest, I have to admit how I don't attend to the unexpected sources of truth and life in my days very well. I'm always looking for an easy and breezy way of getting better. I'm always hoping that my reading and my self-improvements and my crafting of my public image, that those things will bring me the full life that I want. Instead of paying attention to those moments when my character is exposed and I fail, and I receive the gift of honesty. Those times when my strength isn't enough and I receive the gift of limitation. Those experiences when we are let go from a job or we're betrayed or we fall ill and we receive the graces that come to us in aftermath. 
And at least in part, what I hope we are learning as we listen to Jesus tell us stories is that truth is probably more present to us more often than we think it is. And transformation is in the dead ends that we hit, in the places where our life script goes off the rails, when it feels like the heroes and the villains in our stories are all switched up. Meaning that, to some degree, Resurrection might be real for you in the days, in the weeks, in the months, in the years to come when you learn to see life on the other side of plot twists. When I'm sure your life won't be perfect, don't get me wrong, but it will be new and it will be riddled with grace you have never seen before. Now, We need to hop back into this parable, this well-known story that we know, because where we left off, this younger brother is in a far-off country and his luck has run out. He's dealing with poverty and starvation there and it's really interesting how the Greek plays with the imagery here. There's some terminology that comes to us because when we see at the beginning of the story this son asking for his share of his father's estate, the noun there, usian, It means that he was asking for material things and wealth, but also that term can refer to the substance or essence of a thing. And when it says that the father divided his property between his two sons, the noun for property there is bion, which derives from this Greek word for life, which is to say that this younger brother, when he cuts and runs and does what he wants, he doesn't just waste some stuff. And he doesn't just wreck some property, he doesn't like crash his father's car or break some furniture or destroy some doors, and I'm not saying I did those things, I'm just saying hypothetically as examples, right? The inference is that there's more to being lost here, or there's more being lost here than just material resources. The inference is that this son has taken the essence of his family's goodness, their heritage, their long cultivated healthiness and reciprocity, and he's wasted it. And I think if we are to see ourselves in the story of the younger brother, this is an important thing to note because I think that some of us may have learned through difficulty how when we don't make healthy choices and maybe we demand our own way, maybe we hurt others when we do these things, we don't just damage egos or cut off our social network or relationships or injure our career. No, we make a mess of our essence We crack something at the core of who we are. And maybe over time we get angry and bitter and we become a shadow of what we thought we'd be. Sometimes we start to despise the ways we've wasted the good that people have invested us and we regret. And we feel like a stranger in our own story. And much like the younger brother, these experiences leave us far from home with our souls starving. And what's curious is how at that point, Jesus turns the narrative. Because we read that the brother comes to his senses and he says to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving. I'm gonna go back to my father and I'm gonna say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And Robert Capon clearly and keenly observes how this kid seems to maybe have turned a corner, but he still doesn't get it. He thinks he's gonna go home and make things right. He's somehow gonna repay what he's wasted. 
And in doing this, he might remind us of ourselves, of the ways we think about God and how we build theology. And maybe like this kid, we be, maybe we're self-aware enough to know that we don't have it together and we've att- attempted to turn our way around. We make some tough choices. We get out of some tough spots only to approach the divine with this kind of business arrangement where we'll work for a living and we care for others, and we volunteer, and we pray, and we podcast, we avoid pleasure, we read parenting books, self-help books, Oprah, book club books, and we do all the things in the hopes that our labor might swing the scales in our favor. And Jesus cuts us off with the story. Whereas the son returns home with his contract in hand, the father comes running. And to one degree, this becomes a parable of grace because the son can't even offer his request. As John Noland summarizes beautifully, the son can do no more than come within reach. And the father embraces the squandering child and he welcomes him and clothes him and organizes this raucous party to celebrate complete with the long prepared and fattened calf. And see here, the audience may have started to think, oh, I think I get it. Because in all of these parables, there's a party in them. Lost sheep, lost coins, lost boy, all found, all of them celebrated. And remember, Jesus is telling these stories in the middle of a meal between newfound friends. But then he keeps going. And we meet for the first time the dutiful older brother. He's been out in the fields and he returns home to the sounds of a resurrection celebration and he refuses to go in. And again, the father goes out to a lost son. And the father pleads with him, but he will not be consoled. And he says to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never I never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a go to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your wealth with prostitutes comes home, you just kill the fattened calf for him. And interestingly, just like his younger sibling, this son reminds us of us too. Where the hints of what's owed and how to pay it are front and center. Except that instead, like his little brother trying to cut a deal with his dad out of fear of having gone beyond the point of no return, this older boy shows us what it's like when we live out of fear of what might happen if we stop slaving. And maybe instead of wasting away our lives doing what we want, we slave away at following the rules and others' expectations And we find ourselves kept in a prison just outside the door of grace because we're so afraid of what happens if we don't stay there. And at least in part, Jesus seems to have been saying this, squander or miser your life away. Either way, you end up lost. And the key to seeing this comes by looking at the beginning of this story. How when the younger brother comes and asks for his inheritance, it says that the father divided his holdings between the two boys. And in effect, the hinge of the story is that at the beginning, the father divulges himself of all he has. 
It's a true act of selflessness. He empties his holdings, his essence, to one son who will go and live wildly and to the other who will live as though he were a slave. And then the story ends with this beautiful line where the father goes to the older son, my son, or literally in Greek, my little child. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And there's this crazy image there in them talking where the father's telling his own son, don't you remember? You've been with me all this time. I gave my goodness to you. And here you are asking me for permission to live, but I've already given you all I have. Which is where it becomes a resurrection story. Because I would imagine that all of us are somewhere between the younger and the older brother. Maybe there's some place in your life where you've gone off course or where some weakness or mistake has left you feeling displaced or disoriented and you find yourself doubting if there's a way back. Or maybe you live more with a sense of there being no joy or no newness in your life and you're working hard and you're sticking with what you think God wants from you but if you thought about it just for a second right now, you could identify some anger right under the surface. Some disappointment over how it feels to be in a situation where there's no payoff for your faithfulness. And you find yourself doubting if God is good. And if any of that rings true, then on Easter Sunday, you are not alone because In Luke 24, we read that on the first day of the week, some women, some friends of Jesus went with some spices to wrap his body and they found the stone of this tomb rolled away. So they rushed from the tomb and they tell the disciples and the disciples doubt these women. The story seems like nonsense to them, the text says. And then we read a little bit further about Thomas, this guy in Jesus' inner circle who famously doubts. He doesn't trust the story of resurrection at all. He says he wants to touch Jesus, that he won't believe otherwise. And we learn that with all of these people, Jesus comes and appears to them. And that sounds great, but it's this persistence of doubt in those first Easter moments that should stand out for us and bring Jesus's parables in Luke 15 into focus, which is why we tell them today. Because remember, Jesus told his stories of lost sheep and coins and children to religious leaders, grumbling about who was getting to eat at the table. And there at the end of the third story, Jesus nails his point home. Yes, God is good, but also that if, like the younger son, you've ever doubted how far grace can reach, or you've wondered if you've squandered too much of your one precious life, or maybe like the older son, you found yourself doubting if you've done enough to be good enough, And you find yourself wondering why following the rules seems so unfair and like an unachievable goal. We learn there that Jesus' point is that even our doubts can't keep us 
from being made new. Because the story of Easter is about how, whether we've turned and run far away from what's good for us. We go as far away from it as we can, or maybe we turn from the good that's right in front of our eyes. We learn in these stories that resurrection always comes to find us. Like a father looking for lost children, and like Jesus looking for his shocked and doubting friends. Resurrection working its way into the world through every sun-drenched morning, every tender word, every simple gift, every generous smile, every return of spring, every story told well, every resilient heart we see in every quiet soul at the end of its strength. So we come to see that in these, resurrection is so much more fact than fiction. It's a truth at the center of all things because Christ has brought it to us wherever we are. So this Easter tide, may you begin to look for and trust the resurrection found in the plot twists of your life. May you catch a glimpse of what life looks like when it's not wasted and it doesn't have to be merely survived. And may you be swept up in the truth that you are always welcome at the table, at this celebration party that God is forever throwing for all who have been brought to life, brought back to a life in fact that like this father in a great story I heard once, just like that father, God's already given it to you. Let's pray. Risen God, hope of all creation, making all things new, we come to your story with all of our narratives, the stories of our darkness and our loss, our heaviness, the stories of our joys and our successes, the brightness that we find. And in all these things on this day, we celebrate the fact that you come like a father looking for children, like Jesus looking for his friends in the gardens and behind locked doors, and you bring resurrection to us wherever we are. And so I ask, would you give us open hands to receive it? And where we lack courage to trust you, maybe in this moment, be near to us so that we can be open just a little bit. And would you give us strength and joy to share it with those we know in a myriad of ways, in the ways that your grace works itself out into all things. Let us be part of that, we pray, in the name of Christ, our hope today and always. Amen.